All right, now we're moving on to the preaching and proclaiming of God's Word. I'm going to warm you up with a Presbyterian sermon, right? Not really. It's Presbyterian. But uh, we are working through the letter of James. We find ourselves providentially here at this passage today. And I, I don't know if there are better five verses for Silicon Valley during the season of Lent. So listen along and see if you can understand what I mean. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word. We ask that you would be present now by your spirit, that you would apply its truth to our lives, to our hearts. Help us to hear good news. Please humble us uh, and, and please lift us up in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Imagine that you are working for a big tech company here in Silicon Valley, and you're in charge of a big new project. And so you're at a meeting, and let's say this is an in-person meeting, right, in a boardroom. You're describing a plan for a rollout of this product. Your boss and manager are there, a lot of higher-ups, executives, C-suite people, investors, whatever. It's an important meeting. And here's the very, very shortened version of your presentation. This is what you say. The engineers are putting the finishing touches on the design. We'll have it beta tested over the next three months. By month four, we'll roll out the application on all of our platforms. And with 18 months, we anticipate a 15% growth in ad revenue. Now, of course, obviously, I have no, no idea what I just said. I just threw Silicon Valley words and phrases into a random sentence generator. And this is what came out. But tech people, go with me on this. All right, you make a presentation, 15% ad revenue growth. Oh, people in there, ooh, yeah, ah, sounds amazing, right? And then you see something strange. All of a sudden, on the side, this person appears, kind of like the way Yoda and, and Obi-Wan do to Luke in Return of the Jedi, except this is the Apostle James. He's in his ancient robes and tunic. No one else can hear or see him but you. And he's looking at you kind of squinty-eyed. And he points at you and he says... Tell them the whole plan. Tell them the whole story. So you drop your head and you say, everyone, can I have your attention? I need to make a few brief amendments to my presentation. They gather around and listen again. And you say, first, if the Lord wills, we will live today and tomorrow. The engineers will put the finishing touches on the design. We will have a beta test over the next three months. By month four, we'll roll out the application on all our platforms, and within 18 months, we anticipate a 15% growth in ad revenue. And, in conclusion, we will all die. Maybe tomorrow, maybe another day. The room is silent, but James is like, yes! How's that for a winning presentation in Silicon Valley? Most people are here in this area because they or someone they love has a plan. They have a dream, a story they are telling themselves and others. It can be a story about a great education or a startup or making enough money to buy a house and live in a beautiful place, whatever. 
but the stories they're telling are not accurate. They're not the whole story. They're not the best story. How do I know? Well, the amount of burnout and unhappiness I see in Silicon Valley, the inability to rest, the huge homeless population, the lack of community and deep connection for most people, the imposter syndrome that many struggle with. The stories we tell and the stories we live in Silicon Valley don't cut it. And that's what James is talking about here. The story we tell about ourselves, the story that defines us. And the two things we're going to see here from James are these. One, you got to tell the whole story. And two, you got to tell the better story. The whole story and the better story. So first, tell the whole story. Verse 13, James is positing that there are people in churches that he is writing to who say something like this. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is talking about people in the merchant class who buy products in one place and sell them somewhere else. These people have a business plan, and the best plan is always a story. Right? We're going to go to this place, we're going to spend X amount of time there selling our product, and we're going to make money. Now, this describes the majority of workers in Silicon Valley, doesn't it? People from all over the world come here with a plan, telling themselves a similar story. For some, they come here and they're willing to take any job in the hopes of working their way up to a firm like Google or Apple or Facebook or Netflix. Make a lot of money, eventually be able to buy a home and settle here. Others come already working for one of the big guys, and they want to make their money over several years, vest in their stocks, and then get out and move back to wherever home is and buy a real nice house there. Others come planning to work in an established place, but assume they'll leave at some point to do a startup. Many realize they'll go back and forth between startups and traditional firms until something hits. Still others come with their idea already formulated. They are ready to disrupt and change everything and make billions of dollars at it. Michael Furtick is a CEO of Reputation.com, very well-known, successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur and investor. He's quoted saying this, I want people to understand that Silicon Valley is a deeply religious place that thinks of itself as agnostic. It has some of the strengths and many of the frailties of organized religion. There's a mythology, a story that permeates Silicon Valley. One person put it like this. There's a promise. You work 100 hours a week, you sleep under your desk, and then you'll be rewarded with the wealth of Bezos. Now, that mythology has been fading for years. Now, this is a particular Silicon Valley story. It's quite powerful and compelling. But it's not the only story that's prevalent here. Right? We have other uh, more common stories. Buy a decent house in a decent school district. Keep your kids safe and involved in good activities. Make sure they get into a decent college, and boom, you've succeeded. Another story is what I call the California lifestyle. Beach in the summer, Tahoe in the winter, camping, mountain biking, great food, great wine, great adventures and experiences, a life packed with physical and sensual beauty, Friendship and community optional. What's the story you are telling? The thing that James points out here is that all of these stories are deficient. They're not the whole story, and that creates problems. Verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James wants us to tell the whole story. And that changes our stories. And the whole story, according to James, at least includes at least two important pieces of information. One, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's up to God if you keep on living. You are a finite, dependent creature. Two, you will die. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, why are these important to include in our stories? That God is in charge of our living and we will most definitely die. Well, James explains in verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. When we filter out of our stories that we are dependent creatures who have no idea what the future will bring, and that God is in charge of our living and dying, our stories become arrogant boasts. James literally says that we are boasting in our arrogances. We inflate our abilities, our knowledge of the future, our control over events. We take the gifts and abilities and opportunities God has given us, and we make it all about us and our strength and achievement. Well, again, so what? So we're more arrogant and boastful than we ought to be. Why does that matter? Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Some commentators are confused why James would put this verse here in this passage. They see it as unrelated. I think it's absolutely clearly related and connected. What happens when we don't tell the whole story? That God is in charge and we are finite. What happens when our story basically becomes boastful arrogance about how much we're going to do and achieve? What happens then? We fail to do all kinds of good things we know we ought to do. When our story is a startup that goes public or gets acquired, or lots of great adventures locally and experiences traveling, or a happy, busy family that produces successful college grads, when we're not telling the whole story and it's really about us and our achievement, we don't have time to invest in our neighbors. We don't have time to help people in need. We don't have time to worry about justice. We don't have time to help people see Jesus. We don't have time to live out and stretch our faith. There are all kinds of good things we ought to be doing and we just don't have the time and energy because the story we are telling ourselves has captured our imagination. But it's not the accurate whole story. How do you know if the story you're telling is boastful arrogance? Easy. Does it keep you from doing what you know you ought to do? Does it keep you from being generous with your time and money? Are you enraged when your plans are hindered? Is there there good you are failing to do because of the story you are telling? Start telling the whole story. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Do you remember life back in February 2020? We don't have control over the future. We are completely dependent upon our Creator. And our Creator will demand a reckoning from us when we die about all that we've done and left undone. And by the way, we want that. We want people held accountable. And even when our shortened, arrogant story goes as planned, hey, it often does go well around here, right? The startup hits. The kids do well. Even when it goes well, we're not truly gratified or satisfied. It wouldn't take an outside observer long here to see in Silicon Valley that we are no happier 
we have not discovered the secret to peace or rest or joy? When you tell the whole story that you are dependent and finite, it keeps you from boastful arrogance and delusions of grandeur. It enables you to adjust when the story changes, and the story usually does change. And it keeps you alert for opportunities to do good. It keeps you from thinking you're more important than everyone else. Now, you might be thinking, Bob, this isn't my problem. I don't think I'm more important than anyone else. I don't have delusions of grandeur, and I don't have any great story I'm telling. I've tried and failed. My story isn't pretty. Well, again, James' word to you is, you're not telling the whole story. Because the whole story is a better story. The second point. Tell the whole story, the whole story's a better story. Now, this isn't James' main point of the passage, but it is an overall biblical point that the whole story is a better story. But James does hint at this ever so slightly in verse 15. He writes, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was very common to say something like, If God wills, or if the gods will. It was just a basic figure of speech signaling a certain amount of piety and humility. It was a stock phrase. But James alters it. He says, if the Lord wills. James takes out the generic God and replaces it with the title of Jesus and a term for the God of the Bible. So this is more than simple piety and humility. This is recognizing the God of the Bible and embracing the truth of the gospel story. So, hear James again. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, we might take that as a glass-half-empty statement. God doesn't have to let you live. Be glad you're alive. But what if it's a glass-half-full statement? Are you alive right now? Are you? If so, then the Lord, the creator and redeeming God of the Bible, wills it so. The logic is inescapable if you receive this as God's word. Think about it as you take another breath. God wants you alive right now. He wills it so. It matters to him. You have a role to play in his story and creation. You are not an afterthought. You are not an outlier. You are not a remainder. You are not a leftover or left behind. You're not living because you've earned it or you've worked hard or you've exercised or you've fooled somebody or you got lucky. God intentionally, actively wills that you live. What a wonderful beginning to your story. God wants you to live today. He has reasons for keeping you specifically alive. Now, what are those reasons? Now, I can't say for sure in your case, but good clues are your relationships and responsibilities. Many of us wake up in the morning, and whether it's in the front or the back of our minds, we're thinking, I'm going to blow it today. I'm going to blow it as a parent. I'm going to blow it as a manager. I'm going to blow it as a spouse. I'm going to blow it as a single person. I'm going to blow it as a friend. I'm going to blow it as a human being. I'm going to blow it as your pastor. Tim Keller is one of the best preachers of our time and one of the leaders in our little branch of Presbyterianism. If Tim Keller sent out a tweet this morning that said, 
It is vitally important to me and to everything that I'm about that Bob Crossland preach a sermon today at Grace South Bay. That would make me feel great. A shout out from Tim Keller on Twitter. He says it's important that I preach here today. Someone greater than Tim Keller has said that. God has said it. Northern California has ordained me. You all have called me as your pastor. My name is on the schedule. I am alive and well enough. It is God's will that I preach today. It matters to him that I preach today. It matters to him that you parent today. It matters to him that you rest today, but work hard tomorrow at whatever it might be. And if it matters to him, then he has good intentions behind it. He is available to help you and provide you with wisdom. All the stuff that James talked about in chapter 1. God has said to each of us, It is vitally important to all that I hold dear. I will that you live and breathe today. That you do the work that I have appointed for you. To bless the people I've put before you and to enjoy the stuff I've given you. Whether you're a student, a parent, a manager, a spouse, a single person, someone looking for work, God has appointed this for you today. It matters to him. And so he is with you in it. Isn't that a better story? The whole story is a better story. But the whole story includes our death. So how is that a better story? Now, it's true that death is not good. It is the natural consequence of our selfishness and arrogance. But it is a fact that all of us are dying, and most of us don't want to include that in our story. It's not included in most Silicon Valley stories. But including death in our story actually makes our stories better than the stories in Silicon Valley. Why? Well, first, because death is a limiting factor for us. And recognizing our limits as we tell our story is really important. Some even call this the gift of limits. When we remember our limits, that death is a part of our story, we realize it's not all up to me. It can't be. When we have no limits, the goal of our story dominates and defines us. We will stop at nothing to achieve it. We will be that helicopter bulldozer parent. We will work harder and longer and smarter than anyone else. We won't stop because there's nothing in our story that stops or limits us. We either achieve it or we are ruined. When we have no limits and are defined by our shortened story, we have to keep on going. We have to achieve or we are ruined. And Silicon Valley is a textbook case of a culture that refuses to have any limits, that believes it has no limits. And when that's the case, Tim Keller says, success goes to your head, but failure goes right through your heart. Not including our death in our story is a setup for psychological slavery and identity crisis after identity crisis because you bump up against limits that you cannot account for. Failure is not an option. The whole better story is that your days are in the Lord's hands and they are numbered. What does this mean? It means you are not the star of your story. You are not the hero. You can't do it all and you won't do it all. And much of what you've broken, you will not fix. Now realizing this can lead to despair or resignation and low expectations or it can drive you to hope. Maybe there is a hero who fixes all that I've broken and fixes me. 
Maybe that's the best part of my story. See, when we include the limiting factor of death in our stories, it actually enables us to set our sights on things higher and better than whatever we might accomplish. It frees us from having to be our own Savior and justifier. It opens us to receiving the actual Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Career goals, relationship goals, fitness goals, experience goals, these are great. But we know their place. They cannot define us or justify us. And our death should remind us of that. Our whole story is a better story because it weaves us into God's story. He wills that we live and death not be our end. For all who want eternal life are invited to place their trust in God's Son, Jesus. God is setting all things right and making all things new paradoxically through the death of His Son. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death is defanged and loses its terror. So for those who are in Jesus, death is a shedding of sinful flesh and putting on immortal glory. Our whole story becomes one shining, glorious example of God's much grander and richer story of creation and redemption. Look, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with plans. God has a plan to sum up all things in His Son, Jesus Christ. The problem is when our plans, our little stories, ignore God's plan and story. And someone might be listening and thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I have no real plan. I'm not pursuing my dreams. In fact, if anything, I'm living my nightmare. My life is more suffering than anything else. And all of us are at this point sometime in our lives. For some of us, most of our lives. And the shocking twist to God's plan and story was offering up his son as a sacrifice for us. Jesus chose to live his nightmare of poverty and betrayal, rejection, torture, death, God-forsakenness, so he could redeem us in our nightmares. Jesus is with you in your suffering and will make something beautiful out of it. Your story will be woven into God's and all will be well. In verse 14, James asks the question we should all be asking, what is your life? James asks it to humble us. Your life is a mist that vanishes quickly. But what is your life? What is the actual story? The Bible says our life is a result of God's creative action to bear His image and reflect His glory. We are to fill His creation with beauty and goodness. We are to enjoy Him and do good, participating in His glory forever. And according to James in verse 17, there's all kinds of good and right things to do every day that we can easily miss. There are a thousand good things to do today. Thousands of ways to bless people, to image God, to announce His coming kingdom, to point people to rest and forgiveness in Jesus. This doesn't exclude your interests or your family or your career, but it's those and so much more. The whole story is a better story. A.C. Shilton is a freelance journalist and filmmaker. In uh, 2019, she wrote this. A little over a year ago, I drove home from the airport with the windows down and the radio on full blast after filming the last scenes for the Netflix docuseries, The Innocent Man. I was so proud of the work I'd done investigating two wrongful murder convictions in a small city in Oklahoma in the 1980s. This was work that mattered. And I was thrilled to be a part of it. A few days later, 
I sat in my truck and cried. I had focused so intently on finishing one project that I had scrubbed my calendar clean of any other distractions. An empty work schedule yawned before me, and I was sure that my most meaningful achievement was in my rearview mirror. This wave of hopelessness has a name. I was experiencing a rival fallacy. It's this illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, we will reach lasting happiness. It's counterintuitive, but reaching our goals and fulfilling our plan does not make us happy for long. And we sacrifice so much in service to those plans and goals. We need a much larger, grander story, and we have it in the gospel. We are made and wanted by God. No matter our circumstances, we have good and right and meaningful things to do and to be about today. And because we're dying, we're never going to fully arrive in this life. There will be much to rejoice and much to weep over. We will always have to walk by faith, looking to Jesus to redeem and rescue us. We aren't the hero of our story, but the hero knows us and the hero loves us and will bring us home. Let's tell that story. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for how you have rescued us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. We thank you that you have given us life, that you would tell your story through us, through each of us in unique ways. Help us to see and recognize that, that you made us, that you love us, that we belong to you, that we bear your image, and that you are rescuing us from everything that could destroy us, even death. Help us to walk and live and trust in Jesus. Help us to do the good that you put before us. As we make our plans, as we, uh, as we pursue our goals, let us not forget you, that you are here, and that you are doing good in and through us. As we move on now to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, help us to look to him. Give us faith as we eat and drink, and help us to joy union with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.